Thanks, Isaac. And good morning, Collective Church. Let me do my weekly detox of the table because I don't know where Isaac has been or what, what he's got in him right now. Let me throw this down. <clears throat> so yeah, as we just mentioned, we this week are closing out our, what's been a 12-week series over the course of this summer uh, that we've entitled The Story of Justice, uh, tracing the themes and teachings of justice throughout uh, this whole book, beginning in Genesis, moving on to uh, the law and the story of Moses and the family of Israel, and then the prophets into the work of Jesus and then the church. And today we're looking at that last book of the Bible, uh, Revelation, not Revelations, Revelation, uh, the last book of the Bible, and what is the future of justice, of justice. As we end this summer series, I want to begin our time together by asking a question. Why justice? Why do we yearn and crave and want justice for things to be made right? Why are we so heartbroken at the absence of justice? Why are we so enraged at the presence of injustice, of abuse and mistreatment and even murder? Beyond what we do to one another as human beings, why do pandemics and hurricanes and things like colon cancer strike us not just as unfortunate, but wrong? It's strange that we as human beings have this meaning-making pattern, if you want to call it that, where we see injustice, where we see the lack of things being right as not just unfortunate or just the the unfortunate reality of life on this little rock slinging its way through the cosmos, but is wrong. In some cases, using language of evil. And it's strange that we as human beings have this way of looking at history because human history has given us no basis for some yearning and craving of things that are made right. Nature itself doesn't give us any basis for justice being a craving that we have. When we look out at the way the world works and the way that humans treat one another, we could argue that chaos and injustice are simply just the natural happenstances of life on this little blue dot. And the fact that we have a craving for it is so strange because we have a craving for something like uh, food. A food is something that we quite literally die without. And for most of us, that craving can be satiated by the fact that this world does give us food or thirst is, is it does give us water. Our, our craving is built up and pent up in something that is actually out there and exists. And yet this visceral craving that we have for justice, for things to be made right, can't seem to be satisfied in this world. Why are we so hungry for something we've never experienced? And though our conceptions of justice are shaped by nurture, by the culture and the families that we grow up within, its presence, that craving and longing for justice, seems to be quite integral to our human nature, that we are born with an understanding for things to be made right. Just this morning, as I was getting up and getting ready, my little three-year-old Emma uh, began, she, she just started the day in a really bad place, crying. She had a whole time, she, she does this thing right now where she crawls underneath her bed and she cries. And then all the dust from underneath her bed, we do vacuum on a regular basis, but all the dust kicks up. And so she's crying as she's like coughing and she just becomes this big mess. What was all of her, what was wrong with all of this visceral pain and crying? What did it come out of? Well, her little alarm clock, clocky, uh, he turns green when it's time for Emma to get out of bed. And something happened, he didn't turn green this morning. You see, Emma has this incredible reaction that threw off the whole morning, all of this emotional pain, because she had some reality in which every morning clocky turned green and that's how she knew the day was starting. It was a pattern that she understood that this is how the world works. And when that was taken away, that's when the, the pain came. That's when the tears came. Why are we so pent up over the desire for something that doesn't seem to be part of this reality? This oddness, this experience that we face, not with the absence of clocky turning green, but with justice of things being right in this world reveals something integral about what it means to be a human being. C.S. Lewis in his incredible book, Mere Christianity writes, if we find ourselves with a desire 
that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If we have a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then it must, it must point us to the reality that, this, that, we, that there, the cravings and longings of our souls and our hearts must be wired in some way to a world that is not like this one. And so for our final week in the story of justice today, looking at that final book of the Bible, Revelation, we're gonna be looking at that question a little bit more of what is this world that C.S. Lewis talks about? This one with the absence of justice. And what does that point to? This another world as Lewis refers to it. This thing that we were made for. We're gonna be finding this today as we look at that book of Revelation, the Apostle John's uh, poetic, metaphor-laden, symbolic uh, throughout reflection on the future of justice. And so we're gonna be reading from Revelation 21, one through six, and then uh, we'll begin with a word of prayer as we move into our time together today in the future of justice. Revelation 21 Beginning in verse one, the apostle John in his prophetic vision, he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the old things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Let's pray. Fathers, we've noted already in the gathering today, this week has uh, cut us deeply of the, of the deep need for this world to be put right. As we watch from our televisions or news feeds, we see the fires that seem to be overtaking uh, this state. We watch as Hurricane Laura slams into Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico. God, in the shooting of Jacob Blake this week, and then in the subsequent shooting there in Kenosha, God, as COVID-19 continues uh, to do its work in this world, uh, taking life and, and adding pain and suffering to people, God, and even as something like the loss of um, Chadwick Boseman of uh, the Black Panther, <laughs> God, we... Uh, these just, we just keep seeing these, these realities of the, the, the brokenness of this world, that even our heroes are not above it. God, there's a fracture running through this world that needs to be made right. And so in the midst of this world where it feels like everything is becoming unglued, would you help us to receive John's vision and let it set on our eyes like a pair of goggles through which we see this world? not out of any delusion, but based in the hope of both the resurrection of your son, Jesus, and his coming return. In your name we pray, amen. So the book of John, his revelation comes to us and stands as the final book in the New Testament, in the scriptures. And this exists as what we saw there, John saying, and I saw this vision, a, a revelation of what truly is real. Sometimes it's been referred to as the apocalypse of John. And we have all of these, just, we just, well, that's a whole nother conversation. Our misunderstanding of the word apocalypse as being the end of the world or destruction. When in it, the Greek that John's writing in the apocalypse is it just means to reveal or uncover something. The revelation, the apocalypse of John is the re revealing and uncovering of not just the world as it will be, but the world as it truly is. 
And through this book, John provides for us and gives us an expectation of the future satisfaction of our presently unsatisfied desire, that that desire and longing for justice, what Lewis called that another world, the world that we were made for. And this revelation is of the coming justice of God when the old passes away, when it's no more, and when the new arrives, the new is made. It's a powerful claim that John makes that comes after these 20 chapters that led up to chapter 21, where we are today. And so just as a roadmap for what we're gonna be looking at today. Today, we're looking at the final part in the story of justice and what we're calling the future of justice, which you could summarize as being in with the new, out with the old and life in between. And so you can see what we're gonna look at today is begin by looking at John's unveiling, his, his apocalypse, his revelation of the new that is coming in and then spending a little time on what it means that the old is on its way out before spending a little bit of time at the end, just reflecting on how do we live our lives in this in-between place? As each week is true, we've got notes there in the chat for you. You can follow along. Uh, anything with an underline has got little hyperlinks. You can look into stuff as much as you want later on in the week or uh, maybe cross-reference some of the verses and stuff that I might reference here, but you can go back and check them out for yourself if you'd like to. As that gets posted in the chat, maybe you open that up. I also just want to take a moment before we go any further. And uh, we just need to give a hoot and holler for April and all of the work that she does. Um, as much as you guys uh, may, the, the whole video thing that's happening is all because of April. And uh, each week, man, yeah, you guys drop off cookies and, and get her some dinner or something like that uh, because um, this happens because of her. And I'm, I'm especially thankful for her as, as some of the stuff changed for my teaching today that she's been so um, quick and just super helpful. So April's the best. I'm making eye contact with you right now. You the best, homie. All right, in with the new, out with the old and life in between. Let's get into this. In with the new. There in 21, verse one, John in his revelation has a vision that he describes as a new heaven and a new earth. Now this is new in kind, but it's not another earth. The Greek that John's writing in is what he perceives is not, I saw a a new earth, a brand new thing, but a renewed heaven, a renewed earth. The way that I've summarized this back when I used to teach high schoolers, uh, the Bible and theology, is that revelation is not giving you a death star theology. That is that that one day God's going to arrive and blow up everything. Rather, God is coming in Jesus one day to restore, to resurrect this material, physical world. He's going to do restorative justice to put this world to rights. For John, the language of heaven and earth, we can get into that more, but the big idea is he's saying that God has put right everything up there and everything down here. John perceives an entirely renewed physical material world. And at the center point of this brand new world, this new creation is in verse two, a renewed, a new Jerusalem, a holy city. That's so beautiful. John can only describe it like a bride walking down the aisle to her groom. She's beautiful. It's captivating. It's a city, but it's like a city you've never seen before. In Jerusalem, the city of Salem or Shalom, the Hebrew word for peace or wholeness and completeness, it's the city of peace coming down. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the place where God dwelled with his people, Israel, there in the city of Jerusalem. And now there's a renewed, a fully what it was always meant to be Jerusalem that is coming here to earth. And what's so profound about this city of Jerusalem is that it's not just Israelites. It's not just a city of of Jews hanging out with Jesus forever and eternity. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10 describes the diverse and unified community that makes up this new city. He says this, after this, I looked, John again, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, that is Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches. That is a symbol of peace and victory in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, singular, 
this huge multitudes that nobody could count is crying out in one unified voice. And what are they all saying together? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That is Jesus Christ. Now this might be a sidebar, but racial reconciliation is essential to the gospel because the whole point of the gospel ends in New Jerusalem. It all ends with all people from all tribes and all tongues and all languages unified together, praising the resurrected and now returned Jesus. And notice that for John, there's no erasure of ethnicity. That when we go to heaven, we don't all get whitewashed and turn into some kind of, or, or maybe, you know, glowing. We're just glowing now. But, but for John, in his vision, he sees all of the colors all, all of the languages, all of the tribes, all of the cultures, all together worshiping Jesus. It is not the erasure of our ethnicity in the new heavens and new earth, but it's a unification in worship of Jesus. Where all of our voices, all of our languages, all of our cultures and all the ways that we worship are coming together in this one song together. John's vision is one in the new heavens and new earth where we retain our ethnicity, our cultures, our languages. John celebrates them all together. Like I said, this new Jerusalem, as you go into the rest of chapter 29, you can read this week, he describes this new Jerusalem as so beautiful, he can only compare it to precious gemstones. But the surprising detail in verses 22 through 26 of this new Jerusalem, unlike the old Jerusalem, is there's no temple. Why is there no temple? Well, back in verse three, we just read this a moment ago, is that now the dwelling place of God is with man, that God will dwell with his people. They will be his people and he will be their God. You see, the temple in Israel's day was understood as where God dwelt in his presence with his people. Now in the new Jerusalem, it's, it's the whole city. It's the whole world. You see, this is God's restorative justice at work. God's putting right of what was fractured all the way back on page three. The garden in Eden with humanity living and dwelling in the presence of God, what was separated by sin and idolatry and injustice is now being undone. It is being restored where humans live together in the city of peace, walking in the presence of God. I mean, this is central to the story of scripture. It's central to Jesus's uh, prayer that he gives us. When Jesus teaches us to prayer, what, is, what are some of those opening prayers right there? Is your kingdom come, your will be done. What? On earth as it is in heaven. It is the union of heaven and earth that is the whole point and future of the story of justice. And this is why the common belief that the gospel and what Jesus came to do is all about you getting to go to heaven when you die isn't, one, it's not only is it not biblical, it's not justice. It's not the whole point of the story. Nothing short of the reunion of God's space and human space, what was set apart being brought back together can truly be called justice. If you just go to heaven when you die and God blows up the world, then it's not actually restorative justice. It's an escape plan. But God's heart, his throne is righteousness and justice. And so how could we expect anything other than the restoration of his good world gone bad? Now, but what does it look like when God moves into the neighborhood? Well, in verses four and five, what does he tell us? That when we live in the presence of God in this new heavens and new earth, our tears are wiped away. Not just that there's no tears, but they will be wiped away by God himself. Do you notice that John's perception of the deep, tender comfort of the living God in his presence with his people, physically touching them, physically wiping away their tears. It's a comfort and consolation, a closeness to God that many of us desire in our deepest hearts. And yet right now, the space between heaven and earth makes that few and far between when we feel that. John says one day it's going to happen in all of its reality. He says that he will extinguish death in verse four, that death doesn't get the last word, that cancer and pandemics, that shootings and injustice and genocide and murder, death doesn't get the final word in this new, that there is an undoing and extinguishing of death when God comes to town. And when there's no more tears and when God is with us to wipe them away and there's no more death, he goes on to say, there's no more mourning or crying or pain. He lumps these in and refers to them as the old things. 
in the presence of God and in the absence of death. It's not mourning, crying, or pain, but the reversal. It is celebration and laughter and joy. It is everything your heart longs for. It is the world that you were truly made for. In verse five, he tells us that in this renewed world, this new city, there is this spring of the water of life. Later on in chapter 22, he describes the river of life as coming up from God's throne, which the psalmist, if you remember, tells us that God's throne is righteousness and justice. And so here you have the river of life that is flowing from the throne of justice and all of the thirsty are invited to drink from the river of life that flows from God's justice. And it runs through the middle of the city. And as it runs through the middle of the city, this is all just this big map that that John's putting together. At the middle of the city, at the middle of creation, is a garden. In the middle of the garden is the tree of life. John describes it as constantly bearing fruit for God's people to feast on, the restored garden of Eden. This is, it's, the whole thing is that, that it's, it's restorative justice. Him putting right everything that was lost on page three. When humanity ran from God, we lost the tree of life. We lost the dwelling with God and all of that is now being restored and brought back to it's what it meant to be. And most incredibly is that this tree of life is described in verse 22, verse two is saying that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Is there anything else that, that my heart just cries for? I don't know how the leaves do it, but the, the healing of the nations that this might come about. John just gives us here a prophetic vision of, of what is on its way in, what is the new to come, using loaded, yes, with symbols and metaphors and pictures from the Old Testament scriptures and pulling from the story of Israel and their temple and their city, Jerusalem. And yet what we have here is a captivating picture of what Lewis referred to as the another world that all of our desires seem to point us to. This is the new that is coming. But in order for the new to come, John remarks that the old must go. If you go back to verse one of chapter 21, John says that the new heaven and the new earth come in, in, in the new heaven and new earth come as the old heaven and old earth are, they pass away. That they pass away. And then he has this one little line right there that you might've caught as we were reading it. And the sea was no more. All the surfers shudder. All of us who've been locked up from going to the beach all summer are, are crying right now. What do you mean the sea was no more? No more sea? We need to understand once again that John, John's work here in Revelation is deeply in this and symbol laden. It is it was apocalyptic literature. John's writing in this. And so the sea, and you've heard me talk about this before, is a common metaphor throughout the scriptures to talk about chaos, to talk about disorder and darkness and evil, all that can't be tamed by humans in the world. We refer to the sea as it's the darkness and the chaos, what, what humans can't seem to control. Right now we see why this metaphor makes sense going on in the Gulf of Mexico as it's coming in the, with Hurricane Laura. Oh, the sea, it's, it's like a hurricane. We can't control it. It's chaotic. It's destructive. And, and all you can really do is run and hide and batten down the hatches when it comes. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the sea is used as a metaphor for war, for ruin, for distress, for death, evil, and even pandemics and plagues. By saying the sea is no more, John is saying no more chaos, no more darkness, no more evil. No more tears, death, and mourning, right? They're connected to that sea. And so surfers, you can rest assured, (laughs) it's God's created world that's going to be good and renewed. And we need to read John in the genre that he's working in. Now, what's interesting though is we're gonna, because we're reading in chapter 21, we're gonna play around with the sea a little bit more here for a moment. For John, the absence of the sea in verse uh, one of chapter 21 is is, is the culmination of this huge theme that's been running throughout the story of Revelation. One that we cannot talk about justice without looking at. You see the chaos waters, the sea in Revelation is not alone. In chapter 13, verse one, John in another vision sees this giant mega beast. Like, you know, here it is, the apocalyptic, you knew we were going here. This giant mega beast with seven heads and it's this whole crazy thing. It comes out of the sea. 
So the sea generates this crazy mega beast. And then in, in another vision in chapter, uh, what is it? 17, he sees seated, like riding on authority over controlling the sea as he, he calls it the, this, the great prostitute, the great harlot you might've heard it referred to as. So what is John like on some really bad trip? Like what in the world is good? What is John seeing here? John is utilizing symbols of the beast and the harlot of the prostitute for what John refers to in 17, 5, 13, 11 through 18. These two things are symbols of what he calls the great city Babylon, which is interesting for John because Babylon was a real historical city and it fell 600 years before Revelation. So why is John talking about Revelation? Why is he talking about Babylon here in his Revelation? John is picking up on Again, like with the sea, a common biblical metaphor where for Babylon, Babylon became a representative of any empire of humanity that doles out idolatry and injustice. You might remember all the way back to what was it? Week three in the foundation of justice, where we talked about humanity's forming and filling ability to rightly administer what God ordains as good and evil. But as we take that for ourselves through our idolatry, we dole out an injustice. We come together in what is the city of Babel, the city of Babylon. And so throughout the scriptures, we find Sodom and Egypt and Assyria, even Jerusalem identified as Babylon. This is why there's a need for a new one. We talked about this in our failure of justice with the prophets. But for John in his day, this you know, enigmatic Babylon metaphor, he assigns it to the ruling powers of his day, Rome. Rome. All of these cities, all these empires are Babylon. And so John sees himself as a prophetic whistleblower, uncovering and revealing the current ruling empire's true nature, Rome's true nature. So what does he do throughout the story of Revelation, throughout the book? Rome was largely celebrated and patted itself on the back and praised itself for the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that it brought where all wars seemed to come to a stop, that there was peace within our borders. John levered, he places himself against Rome by saying, this peace is not peace, but fear. That Rome is not a peaceful nation, it's a beast. That the only reason no sword has been taken up against it is because everybody's terrified of its war, of its war machine, of the murder and extortion, the unjust laws that it doles out. It is not a nation of peace, but a nation of war and that this peace has only been brought about by the blood of the slain. Similarly, Rome praised itself for its economic blessing, its bountiful markets. This was all identified in Roman culture as the Dia Roma, the goddess of Rome. She was the one who brought the bountiful markets and all the good food and all the luxuries of Rome. And John takes the language and imagery of her and doesn't call her the goddess, this, this wonderful, you know, um, uh, patron of Rome, he calls her a, a prostitute, seductive and deceptive, though it seeks to exploit and deceive her people. One of the most profound places of it is in Revelation 18 verses 11 through 13, where John is talking about the day that the, the prostitute, that Babylon, that Rome falls, prophetically looking to the future. And he says this, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, that being Babylon or Rome or the prostitute, since no one buys their cargo anymore. So that there's, no, there's no Rome to come and sell our goods to. What kind of cargo are they bringing? He lists gold and silver and jewels and pearls and fine linen and purple cloth and silk and scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood and bronze and iron and marble of cinnamon and spice and incense and myrrh and frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses and chariots and slaves. That is human souls. John comes against Rome, all of the opulence, all of the luxury of Rome, all of your bountiful markets is built on what he puts together there, those final three, horses and chariots. This is the tanks and, and, and guns. This is the, the, the tools of warfare in their day and, and slaves, which John punches right. And doesn't just say slaves, but he goes, what I'm talking about here is human souls. 
For John, all of Rome's idolatry stems from Rome's injustice. As they blaspheme, they they slander or defile God, God's name, God's word, God's church. That the root of Rome, Babylon's injustice is their self-worship of their state, their nation themselves. John even goes further to leverage what might be the worst, the strongest point in claim where he says that all of Rome's power is actually demonic. He places Rome, Babylon's authority as coming from that ancient serpent, the dragon, the devil, the Satan, whatever you want to call it. It is demonic power that it's at work. You see, in Revelation, John's perspective of the world is that the devil's primary way of working in the world is not through the possession of individual humans, though we see that happening in the Gospels and even today. What John's primary focus is in Revelation is the devil's possession, not of people, but of systems and structures and policies. John is inviting us to see that the devil is not at work simply on individual levels but in the ways that individual humans build their empires. John is calling for his readers then and now to see all of human history, all of human empires as being those of idolatry and injustice as Babylon, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon itself, Greece, Rome, the British kingdom, and its colonization, Nazi Germany, China, Russia, and even the United States are all varying degrees of Babylon. What is so upsetting for me about our regular misuse of revelation is we become preoccupied with conspiracy theories, trying to figure out some secret knowledge to figure out what the mark of the beast is going to be and who the antichrist is. Where when John's, John's take on this is you are living in that right now. It is not a coming moment. He wants you to read this story, revelation with your eyes set out on your city, your state, your nation, your neighborhood, your world. And then to ask if the prophetic boot fits, then I find myself in Babylon. You could summarize it in two ways. The injustice and idolatry of Babylon, which in Revelation he describes as slavery, as war, as murder, as wealth and luxury, and as sexual immorality. So John doesn't want you to go looking around for, are they going to put chips inside of us, some vaccine? Are they going to put something in my mouth? What am I, my phone and reading my face? John wants you to just stop for a second and go, do I see these sorts of patterns at work within the empire that I find myself in? We don't have slavery anymore. Okay, let's have a conversation about overcriminalization and the labor work of the prison system. Let's have a conversation with those that work for the uh, mega empire of Amazon. Let's have a conversation about what essential workers are in this moment. Let's have a cut. Like if we genuinely think that slavery, maybe not as bad as it was, but doesn't continue today or the, the borderline slave working conditions of so much of what allows you to have your clothes off at 20% off. War and murder on, on all sides that this is happening. We have a conversation just a minute ago, praying for Jacob Blake and his healing the shootings in Kenosha. If there's blood on the streets, you find yourself in the city of Babylon. Wealth and luxury. I mean, we could just go, this is what the whole series has been. John doesn't want you trying to do some kind of math numbers system to figure this out. He's saying you're living in it right now. You are in Babylon. He labels all this injustice as flowing from Babylon's idolatry. They're prideful and arrogant words. What more? I mean, could describe the current conversations in our nation other than prideful and arrogant words. Even blasphemous words, this idea of slandering God. You have a conversation about slandering God and throwing God out of the conversation. Let's just talk about the DNC and the RNC the past few weeks. Misusing, excusing language for God as we syncretize it, idolatry with the state. And then worship of political leaders is, is always a hallmark of Babylon where all of your hope for your life and for your good is all bent up in that one person being my person and them getting through. You see, the American church has fallen prey to exactly what John's deep fear was for the church in Rome, that you would forget or not see that you are in Babylon right now. 
And so for John, you're never gonna be able to enter into the story of justice until you realize that the story of injustice is the story of Babylon. The human history is the cyclical tale of Babylon rising, hitting a pressure point where all of its injustices can't hold up anymore. And then it crashes and falls as a new Babylon begins to build its way forward. And it happens over and over again. This is human history. The question then is what will finally break this cycle? It's answered in Jesus's words in 12, five and, or 21, chapter 21, five and six. What does he say? Jesus says, I am the one making all things new. I have done it. For John, the cyclical story of Babylon will only be broken by the bodily return of Jesus when he comes to kick Babylon out and to set things right. And what would normally take me 20 minutes to summarize, the Bible project can do it in six. And so just to summarize this, what's called the day of the Lord throughout the scriptures, when Jesus comes to make all things new, we're gonna watch the Bible project, bring all this together, bringing in a little bit of what we looked at already. And then I'll be back to kind of close this together as we look at life in between. The day of the Lord. It's a phrase in the Bible that religious people use, usually when talking about the end of the world. Yeah, things like Armageddon or the apocalypse. You might be familiar with this image of Jesus returning on a white horse. He's got a sword to bring final judgment. And everyone wants to know, how will it all go down? So a lot of these images come from the last book of the Bible, but to understand them, you have to go back to the first book. When the story begins, we watch God create an amazing world, and then he gives humans power to rule over it on his behalf. But the humans are tempted by this mysterious, unhuman character who offers them a promise. You could define good and evil on your own terms and put yourselves in God's place. Which is what they do. And the resulting stories are about the broken relationships and violence that results. Yeah, this promise creates huge problems. Now everyone has to protect themselves and fight for survival, and they're all using death as this weapon to gain power. It all leads to a story about the building of the city of Babylon. Or in Hebrew, Babel. Everyone comes together to elevate themselves to the place of God. And God knows how devastating this could be. A whole culture redefining good and evil as if they are God. So God confuses their language and scatters them. Now from here on, Babylon becomes like an icon in the biblical story. It's an image that represents humanity's corporate rebellion against God. And the next time we see it is in the story of ancient Egypt. Yeah, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he feels threatened by these immigrant Israelites. He starts killing all of the boys, enslaving the rest. And this is really evil. Yeah, Egypt's like this bigger, badder Babylon. They take care of themselves at the expense of others by redefining evil as good. And so God turns Pharaoh's evil back on him. His pride drives him forward and he's swallowed up by death. Now after this great deliverance, the Israelites sing a song about how God is their warrior who liberated them from evil. And the Israelites referred to this moment as the day. The day they were rescued from a corrupt human system. And every year since then, the Israelites have celebrated the day of their liberation with this symbolic meal of a sacrificial lamb. It's called Passover. Eventually, Israel comes into its own land, have their own kings, and they face new enemies. So that past day of the Lord, celebrated every Passover, begins to generate hope that God will bring the day again to save Israel from new threats. Now, out in the hills, was a sheep herder named Amos. He was appointed by God as a prophet to announce shocking news to Israel, that God was bringing another day of the Lord against his enemies, and this time the target is Israel. What? Sadly, Israel's leaders had also redefined good and evil for themselves, resulting in corruption and violence. So God's people have become like Babylon, the oppressed become oppressors. Babylon seems like a trap no one can escape. And so the day of the Lord comes upon Israel. They're conquered, taken captive into exile. And from then on, Israel suffered under the rule of continuous oppressive empires. This is the story Jesus was born into. Yeah, in his day, the oppressive empire over Israel is Rome. So is Jesus gonna confront Rome, take him out? Well, no. Jesus saw the real enemy as that mysterious, unhuman evil. The evil that's lured Babylon, Egypt, Rome, Israel, all humanity has given in to evil's promise of power. This is what Jesus resisted alone in the wilderness when he was tempted to exploit his power for self-interest. 
but he didn't. And after that, he started to confront the effects of evil on others. Yeah, he started saying that he was going to Jerusalem for Passover for a final showdown to confront the evil of Israel and Rome by dying. Dying? I mean, that feels like losing. Jesus was going to let evil exhaust all of its power on him, using its only real weapon, death. Jesus knew that God's love and life were even more powerful, that he could overcome evil by becoming the Passover lamb, giving his life in an act of love. And something changed that day. When Jesus defeated evil, he opened up a new way for anyone to escape from Babylon and discover this new kind of power, this new way of being human. Okay, so something changed. But the power of evil is still alive and well, and we keep building new versions of Babylon. Right, and so the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, points to the future and final day of the Lord. It's when God's kingdom comes to confront Babylon the Great, this image of all the corrupt nations of the world. Yeah, this is it, Armageddon, final judgment. How is Jesus gonna finish off evil? Well, that's not how you'd expect. In the Revelation, the victorious Jesus is symbolized by a sacrificial bloody lamb. And then when Jesus does arrive in the end, riding his white horse to confront evil, he's bloody before the battle even starts. Pre-bloodied? That's a strange image. Yeah, it's because Jesus isn't out for our blood. Rather, he overcame with his blood when he died for his enemies. And the sword is in his mouth. It's a symbol of Jesus' authority to define good and evil and hold us accountable when he brings final justice once and for all. And so, in the meantime, the day of the Lord is an invitation to resist the culture of Babylon. And it's a promise that God will one day free our world from corruption and bring about the new things that he has in store. So there's a Bible project. Looking at this day of the Lord, looking at the entire hope of being when Jesus himself comes to make all things new, when he who knows and is able has shown himself and his rejection all the way back uh, to when he went down, you know, face to face uh, with the enemy uh, in the wilderness with his temptation, knows how to rightly order, to do justice, to dictate between what is good and evil. When he returns, he will set all things right. This is where we as a community, as a people, need to have a healthy pessimism as we move into justice. Now that sounds bad, but all I'm saying is that we need to realize that any attempt to overturn Babylon, like they said in the video, it just becomes Babylon in the process. So the question is, if only Jesus can truly end and overturn Babylon forever, where do we go from here? On one state, I mean, in the same way that though death continues until Jesus's resurrection comes, we do have things like medicine, right? That, that helps stall or slow things like pain and death in the same way that our inactions of justice, our actions of justice are like policies, which can stall Babylon. But the reality is, is that we have an acknowledgement that part of what it means to be the people of Jesus with heaven and earth still fractured and not yet fully brought together is that we we, we just have to acknowledge that our deep prayer will be that of the early church of Maranatha, the Aramaic of, of come quickly, Lord. So where do we go from here though in the meantime? In Revelation 21, as we continue in Revelation 20, what we've been looking at, John details what we're called to as we live our life in between, where he says, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my people. Belonging to that new too is belonging to God as father. Belonging to that new creation that's coming to drink from the water of life, to dwell in the new city of Jerusalem. And that heritage comes to those who conquer, inferring by this, the conquering of human and spiritual evil of, of Babylon and the and enemy behind Babylon, uh, Satan, the devil, that ancient serpent as John calls it. But what does John mean by conquer? How do we conquer? Unlike Babylon, it's not through swords or warfare. It's not through deceit, manipulation, or economic power. We conquer by following Jesus's example, Jesus's pattern of what we just saw even in that video. We conquer Babylon and the devil. We, we move in some way, we fill in the gaps between heaven and earth a little bit more as we follow the example of Jesus while his spirit dwells and works within us. 
He gives us a little bit more understanding of what this conquering looks like back earlier in his book in chapter 12 of Revelation, where John says, and they have conquered him, referring to that great beast, Babylon, or or the serpent behind him. They have conquered how? By the blood of the lamb, not the blood of their enemies, but by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Church, we conquer by the blood of the lamb. It is Jesus's sacrificial death, that fountain of justice from about a month ago now, which sets us free from Babylon and from the devil. This is what makes us the new family of justice. It is that in Christ, death has placed all of its emphasis, all of its energy, and it's been taken from us by God and given to Jesus in his cross that we have been made the new family of justice through that work. Apart from the blood of the lamb, we continue as citizens of the nation of the beast, of the dragon, of Babylon. Similarly, not just through the blood of the lamb do we conquer, but by the word of there, that is our testimony. That is through the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom over and against the idolatry and injustice of the empire or empires of Babylon that we conduct ourselves going out into our lives, calling like he writes in 18 uh, verse four, for people to come out of Babylon, to come out of the destruction and death that Babylon continues to place on you. It's chaos and pain. The trajectory that Babylon is going to, the destruction, the being no more that is coming on Babylon and for you if you remain in it. And to come under the blood, under the work of Jesus, to receive life, not just in this life, but even unto the next. And similarly, we overcome by not loving our lives, even unto death. Like Jesus, we are called and invited to conquer through the sacrificial giving up of our lives, our whole lives. By saying even unto death, this is not that John stating that everyone's going to go be a martyr and die for the faith. What he's saying is that everyone is prepared to give their death, but that anybody can say I'm willing to die for Jesus. What he's saying by not loving your lives is you're willing to live for him fully. Giving all that you are, giving all that you have for the sake of filling in the gaps between heaven and earth by the word of our testimony and the blood of our lamb. But it's not just our words, it's our works. As well, Revelation 2, verse 26. Notice that what John says, the one who conquers, and then as a parallel, who keeps my works until the end. They are sat right alongside each other. And what are the works of Jesus? I mean, remember, the, the, it's the, the fulfilling of the divine ideal to love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself that shows itself in the function of justice work that we looked at last week. The, to keep the works of Jesus is to fulfill the law through love and love as the fulfillment of justice. All of these come together in N.T. Wright's book, Simply Christian. It's a little bit longer quote, but it's awesome. He writes, Jesus is... Jesus is at the moment present with us through his spirit, but hidden at the same time behind that invisible veil, which keeps heaven and earth apart and which we pierce in those moments, such as prayer, the sacraments, it's like the Lord's supper or baptism, the reading of scripture. And then notice what he places in our work with the poor. Those are works works of justice. When the veil seems particularly thin, But one day the veil will be lifted. Earth and heaven will be one. Jesus will be personally present and every knee shall bow at his name. Creation will be renewed. The dead raised and God's new world will at last be in place, full of new prospects and possibilities. Our future beyond death is enormously important, but the nature of Christian hope is such that it plays back into present life. We're called here and now, to be instruments of God's new creation. The world put to rights, right? There's justice language, which has already been launched in Jesus and of which Jesus's followers are supposed to be not simply beneficiaries, but also agents. If there is anything this whole series has seek to drive home is that the gospel, the work of justice that God has done through Christ of putting you right is not simply something of which you are a recipient, a beneficiary, of, but an agent of, an enactor of that reconciliation, of that justice. 
that we're not simply waiting for heaven and earth to come together. We know that it's not fully gonna happen until Jesus returns. But nevertheless, as we follow in the way of Jesus, as we care for the poor and the marginalized, as we lift up the quartet of the vulnerable, we find ourselves as being agents of that divine justice coming a little bit at a time where tastes of the new Jerusalem, like an appetizer of the main course that is coming. Do you guys remember eating out? (laughs) It's coming. And it's just in the kitchen being prepared for us. And so we are called to live as citizens of the coming kingdom while we await Jesus's words of one day invitation. What he says in chapter 22, verse 14, come, come into the new city that I've prepared for you. Come into this new and renewed creation. Let's go surfing. Let's go barbecue. Let's enjoy this creation that now is without pain and mourning and death and injustice and idolatry and Babylon. Come into this new city. We are meant to live our lives as citizens of that coming kingdom, which is where he ends in verse eight with a final punch as we walk out the door today where he writes, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, especially the sexually immoral, sorcerers, which is just language of saying those who think they can control God, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. John's closing words here, drive point a driving emphasis that ought to be the thing that wakes us up as we move into the rest of our week and lives. It's first and foremost to hear his words in verse eight as a call for you to reflect on yourself, on your life and behavior. Are you living as a put right human, as an ambassador for new Jerusalem? And for John, the reality is, is that this does not simply go behind whether or not you participate in murder or hate in injustice or idolatry, but what you do with your body, what you do with your words, what you do. He's not concerned just with your idolatry of the political state, but quite literally whether or not you hold to the faith that has been delivered once for all to the saints. Are you living as an ambassador of the new Jerusalem? Not just in your going out and seeking to put right things in the broken world, but your own living as a put right human. Because if you go out and try to put right what's there in the world without having your own life and heart put right through the work of the spirit, then the reality is John sees it as that you are missing the integral marker of what it means to be a citizen of the new heavens and new earth. That you will not belong to the new life, but rather the second death as he calls it. Simultaneously, we need to remember that our emphasis, our work of justice in this world must rightly be paired with an invitation for all to be put right through the reconciling work of God in the person of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection and the full reconciliation of his coming return. Where we, like, like John in chapter 18, call for our neighbors and call for all to come out of Babylon to lay down the injustices and to forsake the idolatry that you have been so wired by the propaganda of the Babylon machine to come out from Babylon and its trajectory that only ends in destruction and death and to receive now and enter into eternal life that begins today and radically transforms you as the sort of person who will belong to this new Jerusalem to be the human you were made to be, to go back to C.S. Lewis, to be the sort of person who is made for the another world that is coming. This is the future of justice and it has such profound implications on what you do today. Let's pray.